Good morning, everyone. It is really lovely to be together and uh, rather lovely to have you with us today as we start this new series. Uh, we're thinking about Christianity true and good because that is exactly what we think it is. Uh, over the next couple of months, we want to make the case that being a Christian is a good thing, that Christians believe true things. And now, of course, not everyone you know is going to agree with that. You might not agree with that. And so, in order to kind of make our case, we're going to be examining some of the kind of pushbacks that people will often give. We're going to address those, think them through, think if they stand up or not. Here's a little summary of where we're going to be going in the next few weeks. We're going to think about how Christianity is true and good and explaining our existence, explaining our value, explaining our purpose. Because there are some really important parts of life, where taking a kind of atheistic, naturalistic point of view just doesn't cut it. We're then going to keep on going and thinking about how Christianity is true and good and surprisingly anti-violence, surprisingly anti-oppression. Surprisingly, because for both of those things, Christianity has a little bit of a bad reputation on both fronts. Some of us deserve because of the bad behavior of past Christians. But look more kind of deeply at it and you realize that Christianity actually stands at the forefront of seeing people lifted up and loved in our world. We're going to see furthermore that Christianity is true and good and upholding justice, true and good and addressing suffering. These are some areas of life, uh, some areas of Christian thinking, where we sometimes put them in the too hard basket, but you actually wrap your minds around the topic of hell and suffering, you realize that Christians have some precious and good things to be able to say about this, uniquely good. We'll see that Christianity is not just fairy tales. Yes, the Bible has some kind of out there stuff in it, but it's entirely believable, life-changingly believable, even by straight-thinking, rational, modern people. Up last will be that Christianity is true and good and fighting for morality, because yes, Christians have done some really bad things in the past, some morally corrupt things. But that doesn't mean you have to be one of the bad guys in order to follow Jesus. Actually, Christianity is a movement that is for the good of this world. Are we better off without Christianity, like you might have been taught to think? Gosh, no! Without Christianity and Jesus' place in our world, you and I would be left in a pretty dark place. Our world would look nothing like it looks today. Our lives would be totally different, definitely worse. That's what I think we're going to see over the coming weeks. That God has given us something true and good in the pages of the Bible. That the kind of ways of thinking and the ways of living that this book has brought about are good and true. And this is where we're actually going to start, actually, in, in thinking about the Bible itself and some of the stuff that's written in it. Maybe some of the stuff that is infamously written in it. Today, we want to say that Christianity is true and good and not stupid. This book, the Bible, is true and good and not stupid. Now, that statement, of course, runs a little bit counter to uh, some of the big popular narratives in our society that think that it is precisely that, real stupid, real backwards, real wrong. Uh, there's a scene in the uh, American TV show, The West Wing, uh, that you might remember if you've seen it, that sends a shiver down the spine of many Christians. Uh, season 2, episode 3, uh, President Bartlett there, as you can see, is in the Oval Office, and he's got a guest, a Christian radio show host. She's a smart woman, he's a smart guy, and he decides to make an example out of her by taking her to task for her insistence that the Bible be the thing that guides her life. Now, let me read some of what he says to her. He says to her, 
I want to ask you a couple of questions while you're here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21. She's a Georgetown University sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleaned the table when it was her turn. What would be a good price for her? Now, of course, that gets no answer from the Christian woman. Uh, but if you or I look up Exodus 21, we'll see that, yeah, it does say something like that. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she's not to go free as male servants do. And so we, we wonder, is the president right at this point? Does our precious Bible actually condone slavery? The scene keeps on going. The president speaks again. He says, while I'm thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leah McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. And in Exodus 35, it clearly says that he should be put to death. So am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or should I call the police? We hear that and we go, oh, I don't, don't like hearing that. Is, is that legit? Is that what Christians should believe if we're being logical? Again, the president keeps on going. He says, does the whole town really have to get together to stone my brother, John, for planting two different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments that are made from two different threads? Now, the president delivers this rant. The woman who is watching is just gobsmacked. She says nothing in reply that makes any sense. You watch it. And you're left wondering, are those things really in our Bibles? And the answer is, yeah. We saw some of them a few minutes ago when Matt read, for, read uh, Leviticus 19 for us. Chances are it made you cringe a little bit at points to hear these words and think, yeah, these are part of our Scriptures. Of course, it's not just kind of a West Wing thing, spend any time on the internet, and you'll come across people who are opposed to Christianity, and they're very ready and very willing to point out that some of the things written right here in our Bible sound kind of stupid. Now, the fact is that the same book that points us to Jesus also talks about people obeying some very strange, very off-putting rules. Now, for instance, eating shrimp is apparently banned in Leviticus 11.10. You know, apologies to all the prawn lovers out there. Now, eating pork is apparently banned in Leviticus 11. Sorry to all the bacon lovers. Tattoos are apparently banned in Leviticus 19. Rounded haircuts, you know, where you're trimming the side of your head, bowl cut style, apparently banned in Leviticus 19. The wearing of mixed fabrics, apparently banned, again, in Leviticus 19. You read that and it just makes you squirm a little bit. You know, when you're a Christian, when you're someone who takes the Scriptures seriously, then having these bits of the Bible pointed out to you, thrust in front of you, it makes you feel a little bit awkward. Maybe it's also a very worrying thing for you to start thinking, does the Bible actually advocate that? Maybe it makes you wonder, is this book really actually crazy? Is it outdated? Is it barbaric? And am I an utter fool for daring to take it seriously? Now, that is, of course, the point behind President Bartlett and all these internet atheists chucking up these verses in our direction. They're not being put out there looking for answers. They're being put out there to say, your Bible is stupid. Your beliefs are stupid. If you take this book seriously, if you read it literally, if you build your life on these words, then the stupidity extends to you. Now, we so often hear 
that the Bible is foolish, it's primitive, it's disturbing, and that anyone who believes it is either an idiot or morally bankrupt, or maybe they're just a hypocrite, a hypocrite for kind of cherry-picking some bits to keep that they like, but ignoring the rest. Here's a, here's a meme that you see on the internet every now and then. I've studied the Bible, that's why I'm an atheist, brought to you by the Don't Cherry-Pick the Bible Society. Where, where do we go with this? I know that many of us are watching are believers. Some of us are not yet believers, but we might be thinking it through. Are you stupid for taking the Bible seriously? Or are you a hypocrite for kind of arbitrarily insisting that some rules matter, but not all the rules, only the ones that, that kind of suit me and my circumstances? I don't think so. I don't think you are a hypocrite nor do I think you are stupid. Because here's the thing. Here's a really big principle to have clear in your head as we think about these kind of hard topics. Crazy Bible verses are often crazy for a totally sensible reason. Crazy Bible verses are often crazy for a totally sensible reason. The problem with all these arguments that get chucked out there about crazy Bible verses is that they usually rest on a kind of pretty bogus understanding, a pretty bogus reading of the text. When you read it fairly, when you read it with the bigger picture in mind, then so many of these arguments just evaporate. They disappear, they turn into nothing. Yes, God gave His Old Testament people laws that by our modern standards today are often rather weird. But they didn't sound weird or strange or dumb to the original people they were given to. They understood exactly what they meant. They could see exactly what God was aiming to do through these laws. I mean, here's a principle that's, that's worth remembering if you want to be a Christian or if you want to investigate Christianity for yourself. The principle is this, never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. I, I get that that's a kind of weird thing to hear a minister saying, but, but it's true. Reading a Bible verse on its lonesome, is actually a pretty darn terrible way of getting a good understanding of what that Bible verse is saying. So never read a Bible verse, but always make sure that you do it the honour of reading the passage, reading the chapter, reading the page, reading the whole book. Do yourself a favour. Honour the person who wrote these words in the first place and take into account the bigger picture. Zoom out a tad. Look at the context. And when you do, so often the things that struck you as being kind of stupid and dumb and weird and irrelevant, you start to realize that actually there's some fairly sensible reasons for these things being in the Bible in the first place. This idea of, of needing to kind of zoom out and take in the bigger picture, it's, it's true beyond the Bible. Forgetting the original context is a surefire way of making something look stupid. For example, in Arizona, in America, it is illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. In Kentucky, it's illegal to carry ice cream in your back pocket. In Connecticut, it is illegal for a barber or a beautician to whistle or hum or sing while they're attending to a customer. You might discover that all those laws are real things, really written in the law books of those states, and you might conclude, man, those people are stupid. You might let it make you doubt that any of the laws those people have written could possibly make any sense. Or, 
you could consider the bigger, wider historical picture behind them and realize that sometimes absolutely crazy-sounding things have a totally logical, sensible explanation. It turns out that the, the donkey in the bathtub thing, it was brought in in 1924 because a farmer used to leave an old bathtub out in his field for his precious donkey to sleep in. It liked sleeping in there, all fine and dandy, until one day a dam broke up the hill, a flood came sweeping through the field, and poor little donkey in his bathtub became a boat, floated down into a river, and the authorities spent days wasting their time trying to fish the poor thing out of the place. Countless hours are wasted. Once the whole thing's over, they decide to write a law. No more donkeys in bathtubs. And boom, just like that, a stupid sounding now, but entirely sensible law back then, is born. Sometimes laws have reasons for existing that we cannot spot if we stay focused in. You have to zoom out. You have to consider the bigger picture. Never read a verse. But make sure you take into account the backstory. And in the case of the Bible, accounting for the backstory means taking into account who this verse was first written for. Now, most of the verses that we're, that we're thinking about here, these weird, kooky, backwards-sounding laws, they are coming to us from the books of Exodus and Leviticus in the Old Testament. That means they're written a long time before Jesus and they're written to a group of people who have very particular circumstances. They're written to Old Testament Israelites. They're written at the time that the Israelites have just been rescued out of slavery from Egypt. God's taken them, He's taken them into a new promised land. They're surrounded, absolutely surrounded, by hostile nations. These nations do things that are evil, that oppose God, and God knows that His people are going to look at the nations and think, well, maybe that is what we should be doing. That looks appealing, that looks nice, I want a little bit of that. He doesn't want this. He doesn't want them to get carried off into worshipping these fake gods and goddesses, and so He passes these laws to say, stay distinct. Don't get sucked into that vortex. Don't get too strongly influenced by the, the cultures that are surrounding you. This is what he means when he says, at the start of Leviticus 19, he says, stay holy, be holy. Holy means stay with me, stay sticking close to me. And when you understand that, that background, when you understand that kind of circumstance behind all these laws, then this stuff that sounds really stupid actually starts making a little bit more sense. You can start to see that there's some logic behind it. God is giving His people rules to help them to remember that they are to be different from everybody else. For instance, why does God say to the Israelites that they shouldn't kind of mix together seeds in the same field? Shouldn't mix different animals together? Well, it's partly because it's a living illustration of how all of Israel is not supposed to mix with the nations around them. Now, scholars also think that uh, the ancient Canaanites had these practices where they would go out and conduct a bit of a kind of weird religious wedding ceremony between different types of grain to try and promote fertility. It's a bit of an occult practice. Uh, this stuff in the Bible isn't just bad gardening advice. It isn't some random, stupid, entirely arbitrary rule plucked out of nowhere because God just loves to make life hard for everybody. No, it's a very specific rule given by God to help His Old Testament people stay distinct, stay united, stay with me. The same thing goes for the, for the no tattoos law. 
It's a pretty important one for us to kind of get to the bottom of because lots of people have tattoos today. If you actually go and read what it says in Leviticus 19, it's, it's way more specific than just no ink. It says this, it says, <coughs> it says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. God, God isn't banning artworks on our bodies. He's banning people participating in these kooky worship rituals that the Canaanites had where they would honor the dead, honor their dead ancestors by cutting themselves and branding their bodies. God is saying, no, don't do that. Stay with me. For, for, the, for the laws about no weird combinations of fabrics, we read that and we go, how stupid. But there's a reason. It's the no mixing aspect of it. Again, don't intermingle with everyone around you. But there's more to it. Now, back in these Old Testament times, the priests of ancient Israel, the priests who served in the temple and in the tabernacle, they were specifically told that they must wear clothes made of two different combined fabrics, a blend of wool and a blend of linen. And so, so this law that says to everybody else, no blends for you, it's actually God saying, don't go imitating the priests. It's a bit like the laws that say that you or I cannot pretend to be a uniformed police officer. It's illegal for any one of us to wear a police uniform unless we're in the force. Same idea here. And there's so many more. We, we, we can't go into them all. Suffice to say that each one has a backstory. And once you start understanding that backstory, then you realize there's actually a clear and logical and non-stupid reason for this law being written. Crazy Bible verses are often crazy for a very non-crazy reason. Now, the accusation that the Bible is kind of pro-slavery is one that often gets chucked into the mix here. And this is a big one, so much so that we're going to explore it in heaps of detail in our week on Christianity being surprisingly anti-oppression. But for now, let me just say one thing. The verses that get pulled out to try and argue that the Bible is pro-slavery, those verses also start to feel quite different when you do the hard yards of understanding them in their context. You start to realize they are not quite as evil and hideous as you might first think. More on that in a couple of weeks. Before you reach the conclusion that the Bible is urging you to believe something stupid, make sure you stop and take a moment to consider the Bible's bigger picture. Maybe especially to consider the fact that the bigger picture of the Bible changes pretty dramatically once Jesus comes into the shot. Once Jesus comes into things, the way we Christians understand the rules of the Bible dramatically changes. It's a little bit like uh, when you were back in high school, if you can remember that far back, uh, back in high school, there were heaps of rules, right? You know, no hitting, no swearing, no running in the halls, no calling out, no bouncing tennis balls off the roof. That was a favorite thing in my high school. And, and some of those rules you leave behind on the day you graduate. On the day you walk out those school gates for the final time, it all shifts. Suddenly, you find yourself free to bounce all the tennis balls off all the roofs that you want, Right? Some of these rules get left behind, but others just keep on applying through all of life, don't they? Do not murder each other was probably very definitely a rule at your school. 
And it continues to be a rule at school, even when you haven't been at school for decades. This is something that is just part of life that carries on for ages. And it's like that when it comes to us and approaching the many different rules in the Bible. Some are there for us in a continuing way. But others are recorded for us as more of a memory of what life used to be like for God with His Old Testament people. I mean, I... Are you personally tempted to imitate the grain fertility worship practices of the ancient Canaanites? I'm guessing the answer is no, and I'm glad, glad to hear that, and you'll be pleased to know that the answer is no for me as well, which means that this ban on not combining crops no longer applies. It wasn't written for me, though I can learn from it and can still benefit from it, but it does not carry on. Some things definitely do carry on though, don't they? Am I tempted to lust after what other people have? Yes. Am I tempted to commit acts of violence against someone when they are opposed to me and make me feel terrible? Sometimes yes. Some things keep on applying because they are universal to all humans. And, and as you read the pages of the New Testament, once Jesus has come into the picture, it affirms this principle. Jesus and His apostles, they get very specific that some of the laws of the Old Testament, they revolved around not imitating the Canaanites. They revolved around working the temple properly. But because the Canaanites and the temple are no longer factors for us, these laws have just become memories. Other things, though, that start in the Old Testament are universal, that will be with us for all time, because they are t speaking to aspects of human life that are with us for all time. Those sort of rules, the Bible makes very clear, still stick with us. No matter the date, no matter the place, we should take them seriously. Now, there's a need for us to be discerning. Now, there's a need for us to not pick everything. Because after all, not everything is a cherry. You know, this idea of cherry picking, it often gets a bad rap, but when you think about it, cherry picking is not always a bad thing to do. Often it makes perfect sense of a particular situation. I mean, imagine if you discovered hiding in the bushes in the back of your backyard an actual cherry tree, you know, a real-life cherry tree there, and you know, you Google it, you confirm it's a cherry tree, and in the, in the little Wikipedia profile it says, this is a tree that produces delicious, lovely fruits. It would not make any sense for you to rush out in your backyard at that point and just start plucking off every single thing you see growing on the tree, right? You know, pulling off the leaves and the unripe fruit and the gross overripe fruit and, and the fruit that's been half-eaten by the cockatoos. You know, it wouldn't make any sense to go out there and just strip the poor thing bare, would it? That would be a total misunderstanding. Just because the tree does produce wonderful, delicious fruit doesn't mean that every single thing growing on that tree must be treated in the same way. It's a smart thing to discern. It's often a smart thing to cherry-pick. There's nothing wrong with taking some bits and leaving others, just so long as when it comes to the Bible, you're doing it on the Bible's own terms, and not just to fit your own personal agendas. These books of the Bible have some honestly weird laws in them. And we read them. And as we read them, we remember what context they're in. We remember who they were written to. We remember why they were written in the first place. We, we, we learn from them. We 
remember how God related to his first people and the, and the things that he thought mattered to them. Staying separate from the people around us is still something that matters to us. But we don't have to take them all and treat them all as being equally important, equally relevant, equally to be obeyed today. Now, we don't have to do that because Jesus has come along and said that that would be a mistake. Here's a question to ponder this week, uh, maybe with a friend, maybe in your Bible study group. What's something in the Bible that you read and you find a little bit embarrassing, a little bit backwards, it makes you feel a little bit stupid? And how do you think that kind of zooming out and taking in the bigger picture might help you to understand that weird, wacky, strange, stupid bit of the Bible? Here's the thing, Christianity is true and good and not stupid. You know, despite all the ways that people will try and portray the Bible and the people who love it as being extremely backwards and out of date, when you read the Bible in a legitimate way, when you read it in a way that takes into account the whole story, at that point you realise that there's nothing sinister going on. The good God has gone and given us a very good and loving book and you are not stupid to take it seriously. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thanks for your word. We know there's stuff in it that we struggle with. We read it with our modern ears and eyes and brains and it just doesn't click, it jars. Lord, please help us to read in a wise way, to read in a mature way, Help us to understand the bigger picture. Help us to see that your word is good and loving. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.